0: Today's episode, we're going to start a series on interrogation, discuss a few things along the way. I'll tell some stories from some of my own experiences, share a few of the laws as they may or may not pertain, just for, I guess, an interesting topic. But you'll learn and see how there's actually a big portion of interrogation that happens in your everyday life and normal communication. We just take some of that and use some other strategies that have been learned over the years. We'll discuss those strategies that we call approaches, rapport building how people do interrogation differently, talk about law enforcement, different branches of military, and some government agencies. So tonight will be a general overview of interrogation, and we'll get that started right here on Gray Man Hiding in Plain Sight. On the Gray Man Concepts Facebook page in the last day or so and in the upcoming few days, One or more posts I put up a day will have something to do with interrogation. You got some videos coming up about rapport building, and I do have a link coming up sometime in the next few days that I'll have the military's manual, the U.S. Army's manual for human intelligence, which includes interrogation. And I didn't put that in there because I came from the Army, and that's where I started my intel career before moving on into other wonderful places, I guess you could call it. It's because that now governs all interrogation, including the agencies, based on an executive order under President Obama around 2009. There's been some interesting changes, and most of them actually had to do with interrogation more than the other aspects of human intelligence. So when you get that manual and you see the Dewey Decimal version of it, you can look up previous versions of it. I think it was a 97 series, but I'm not sure. Probably written in the 80s or 70s, based on their revisions or whatever. So why that's important to this trivia is... If you've ever heard of or watched documentaries, or I'm sure you're aware of things like some of these countries like uh, Noriega, for example, um, different countries in Central and South America, where there are people that have done bad things eventually that we were allies with and then we ousted them. And they're typically in Central and South America, but it's happened in other places. You can find fairly easy that many of them came to a place called School of Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia. name could have changed. I doubt It used to have another name. We brought in foreign troops, typically officers, but not always to learn and train and do like a cooperation exercise uh, with some of the skills and things we did using the army and other things from the military. And we have guys that train in their schools and that happens all the time. But during that time frame of them being there and they got trained on intel, they had that manual. And during part of that time, there's stuff in that manual that leans towards things like chemical interrogation or what you some people would call torture that may or may not be torture. Not all of it's in that manual, but some of it is. And my best guess is somebody forgot to tell them we don't practice some of that stuff anymore, but it doesn't matter, we were stupid enough to give it to them. And that's how they actually did a lot of things based on the training we gave them, or at least the manuals. So that got changed and updated sometime in the late 80s, probably more towards the late 90s. And then when we changed some of that stuff, which really was just deleting things, is when we start getting into Afghanistan and Iraq, and we're capturing people and trying to get information from them, Then there's this big spike in getting human intelligence, counterintelligence people, and especially the Marine Corps and the Army, trained in interrogation that can go in and talk to them. And during this time, there's other people. There's some Navy guys, some Air Force guys. So this guy comes in from an Air Force team. He was an officer running a team working in a facility. And he kind of went with the more get flies with honey approach. Rich really worked, and he was actually pissing people off because they didn't want him to do it. They wanted him to be more in-your-face, and he just saw it wasn't working because it wasn't. So we went the kinder, gentler way trying to build relationships. And through this, we updated manuals to what they are today and changed our approach techniques and then brought in stuff from other parts of the military, law enforcement, other things around the world, working with other intelligence agencies and came up with what we have now. And don't get me wrong, I'll get more into this as we go on, but this is a psychological game is what interrogation is. It's about convincing people to talk to you and give you information. So don't think that this guy was soft and loved these people, and just wanted to be their buddy. No, that's not the case at all, but he needed them to think that to get them to open up and communicate. So those changes happened. We're in those wars for a while, getting closer to the end of the first decade of this century. And we had other things that had gone on, like Abu Ghraib, which was mainly like Guard or Reserve military police. While there possibly could have been some people are technically in an interrogation mission might have known about that stuff, it actually has been pretty much proven wasn't the case, and that's fairly unlikely, although there are some leadership that should have burned for it. But they were, you know, going to be generals and stuff, so we got to let them go. That's just the Army game. We also had stuff going on in Guantanamo we heard a lot about. Some people thought it was torture, some didn't, and all these things were coming on. And then the world of intel starts changing, and missions start changing, and they focus heavily on interrogation, because that's where we're seeing what was perceived or really was problems, But at the same time, that was where we were getting a lot of our intel. So when I used to train people and supervise the training for human intelligence and counterintelligence for the army, I used to interview the people who would graduate the human intelligence course where they learn about half their schooling is on interrogation. And I would say, look, less than 10% of you are ever going to interrogate and set foot in a booth, but they were shocked and didn't understand why that was and why they'd spend half their time learning interrogation. I said, look, when you're doing interrogation for regular military, tend to go to more of what a we'd call a tactical level. There's different levels and there's certain rules and timelines for every facility. But it's like most of you guys will deploy to a location where your detainee facility, whether it's called a detainee holding area or de- or what's like a annex for other facilities, or if you're a major theater facility, theater tournament facility called a TIF. The rules and stuff are going to be different. But a lot of you won't go to a TIFF, a theater facility, what they call it, unless you go to one of the major units that focus totally on interrogation. Most of you are going to go work at these smaller facilities. So in these smaller facilities, you're going to bring in mostly people from your brigade's area. And you're going to get to keep them for 14 days. And I told them there's going to be other rules and things. And, of course, some of this has changed now, being 2020. But we're talking back in the first decade. I was like, look, you're going to go there. You probably get a hold of these guys for 14 days, and then if they have intel value, maybe you get them for another week, but then they have to go to the theater facility. Those are just the rules. You can't control it. While it's unlikely, you will be legally allowed to talk to them up for 20 hours a day. So you can get a lot of time with these guys, and you only need a few interrogators, plus you have civilians, and you might have FBI teams or DIA guys like I did. I was like, look, you're only going to have maybe two guys out of your platoon. They're going to go there. The other 25, 30 of you are going to be on human collection teams running sources. You're going to be split up among your companies and battalions in this brigade. Your brigade could have six battalions. that each could have three operational companies. You could have 15, 20 operational companies. And they're going to send you out there as a team or split you up to go talk to all those people. I was like, so it's really kind of weird. It seems wrong, but I was like, the numbers by manpower need to go to run sources, but you're going to get most of your time in a detention facility. That's why most of you will never go in there. You don't need the people because you'll have civilians that are well-paid and well-trained. And you'll go in there and you talk to them and you'll have a lot of time to talk to them. In most situations, any one guy, a short session might be four hours. That's more than these other guys are going to get in one day talking to a source. So that's kind of how that discussion came up. But getting back to how things changed, so we had all these bad things going on. So What had started happening is people took notice of this, some of it was probably good. There were things that went on a lot more than people realized that were lower-level bad things. Where investigations happened, people got relieved. Some people probably went to jail. Some of it got really ridiculous, but most people have heard about the big things that they think they know about. So a lot of things did have to change. That was going to happen anyway. When that happened, one of the things would change how the mission works. So if you look at some of these special operations units and, like, Places like the CIA and other agencies that are targeting terrorists around the world, they went more from a capture-kill mission to a kill-capture mission. So generally it worked kind of a certain way. Now, of course, this fluctuates, commanders change, rules of engagement change. You know, things fluctuate quite a bit in these situations. But generally speaking, when it's a capture-kill mission, you're trying to capture as many people as you can, you think might have intel value. People think you're going to know things. And you're going to get in there, and you're going to work them hard and talk to them and run approaches and do all these things to try to get them to communicate because they know things. And then we're going to try not to kill too many people and take them off the playing board unless something's actually happened or it's really that big of a threat. So that changed because we had all these issues and people worried about this and things were interfering as well as things also getting better. So they went more towards who's most likely going to talk. And based on history and organizations people would talk to, if they weren't most likely to talk, they were getting taken off the board and then other guys we get captured and talked to. Now, if you're curious how this came about, it was because of restrictions and interrogation. It's that verse for agency personnel, not the military. So here's how it works. Starting our overview. When you talk to somebody in interrogation, there's a thing called approaches. Now, when you get that link to the military manual, you'll be able to look up the 19 approaches, as they call them, or 18 in one technique. However, it's labeled now when they update it. All they are is strategies. Some are a little more unique, like good cop, bad cop, which isn't really a thing, but there's one that's kind of similar works differently, but something as simple as a direct question, who, what, where, when, why, and how is an approach. Now, on the list of approaches, the first, about 17 or 16, have no preference over the other as far as the order they're in. That's just how they're written. It means all you do is say, here's the approaches I'm going to run, and your supervisors are like, yeah, good to go. And when you start getting above that in higher-level approaches, it requires paperwork, sometimes a lot of paperwork, Commanders or equivalent civilians have to sign off on it. So you're talking like colonels, generals, all the way up to the president. So overall, there was 38 approaches. Now, everything in the late teens up to 38 were ranked based on the level you needed to go to to get permission. That didn't make them worse. So number 38 is waterboarding because it took a presidential signature. The reason why was you could die. It was unlikely, but it could happen. So it required a presidential signature. There are way worse things that lower that, in my opinion, I would never want done to me, that worked sometimes and were approaches that could be used. So here's what happened with the change. So when all this is going on, you got Guantanamo, everything's on the news, people are saying this and that, calling things torture, wanting to investigate agencies and go after the military. Some things needed to change. This is also around the time where President Obama made a lot of their changes in the military world. A lot of them were good. This is also the time we start hearing more about NSA surveillance and these other things just a few years shy for people really heard the term FISA courts. So what the president did is wrote an executive order and however, this came about, they took the army's manual, the first 19 approaches and said, that's what everybody does. And that still stands today. So regardless of whatever manuals or stuff they have, the overall Bible that you have to follow is the U S army's human intelligence collection manual, which has the first 19 approaches, the other ones you can't use no more, and that includes all agencies in this country. And then whatever differences there may have been among military branches, which the Marine Corps is the ones that probably has the largest group of interrogators after the Army, I'm not entirely sure. But that's kind of how it that all broke down. Now, that didn't mean they didn't train them. So when some guys came from the CIA, including civilians and military, not that I want to get into why there's military there, but Some civilians and individuals worked at places like the farm and did their interrogation training program. They came down where I was working, and I was one of the people they saw in 2010, just after this happened. And so just so you're aware that this stuff did go on, these changes were made, they came to us and said, look, our program's inactive. While we do do a little bit on regular stuff, like who, what, where, why, when, a lot of the stuff you do is not what we do. Most of our stuff's time-sensitive. We go to black sites, we do whatever. We can't do that anymore. We have to rebuild our interrogation program. So they came right to the Army because it was the Army's manual. And we helped them rebuild that program, which was really just giving them everything we had and explaining to them how we do it and why. And then they had to go and figure out how to integrate, incorporate that program into their training at the farm or at whatever school or location they train those uh, techniques. Now, of course, that carries on through President Obama's time in office. And then we get into our current president, Donald Trump. None of that really changes Um regardless of people's opinions on politics, which is nothing I get into here. Overall, when it comes to the grand schemes of collecting intelligence, doing interrogations, performing military operations around the world in these ongoing conflicts, the more aggressive president who was more involved was President Obama. So we didn't really expect to see a change, and we didn't, because this president didn't push to change a lot of things, not that he needed to by any means, but he's also not quite as aggressive or directly involved as President Obama was with the military and the intelligence community. So at some point in the future, as long as there's ongoing conflicts or an ongoing war on terror, or a lot of these things going on somewhere, something's going to happen or a series of things will happen and this will change again. Maybe it won't be an interrogation. Maybe it'll just be surveillance or maybe it'll be just generally intel collection. Maybe it'll just be war fighting or what agencies do, but something's going to change. And one thing we learned in the intel world is a lot of it comes, not really from public opinion, but the way stories are told in the media and communicated to people and the way they're colored makes you look back in the international state and causes all these problems and they just wanna avoid that. So they realize when that's coming out, we really gotta start looking at it, whether it's real or not. So that's kind of an evolution of how at least the policies and some of the things of interrogation have changed in about the last 35 years. So despite the methods and stuff, when it comes down to this type of thing, when you're interacting with people, it's no different running a source than a detainee. There's certain rules and laws when it comes to interrogation, but for the purpose of the show, it's very, very similar. You're using body language. You're reading body language. You're trying to motivate somebody to talk to you. You're trying to persuade and influence them to get what you want. You're trying to be less memorable as much as you can. Now, in an actual interrogation, that's a little bit different. You're there every day. You're not necessarily looking to be less memorable. But we're not going to be going out and, like, locking people in the closet and doing interrogation. As much fun as you think that would be. But I can tell you some ways to do this at home very simply (laughs) with your kids, which we'll get into at some point. Uh, People I know that are interrogators that have children, their children tend not to lie to them and confess a lot just because they know they're not getting anywhere because of what gets done to them. But we'll get into that in a little while. But the general ideas, the ways you talk to them, the strategies and stuff are very effective to get things that you want, talk to people, get information, give them a different idea, plant stories in their head, whatever it is you want to do. And it comes through the way in which we do this. But before you can do any of it, the biggest thing you really got to do is build rapport. And rapport is really the backbone of everything somebody in my business does. If you don't have rapport, either nothing's going to happen or it's going to be very, very difficult. Now, if you're wondering what rapport is, look it up. Not just in the dictionary, but online articles. You'll see stuff everywhere. People do it in business settings as part of training on how to build rapport. Counselors do it. Everybody talks about it. There's all kinds of things out there that talk about it. In my view, I look at it like a temporary relationship. Now, that temporary relationship could be as long as a few years on the job, but more likely it's going to be anywhere from minutes to days. It's a temporary relationship you're building in order to make things happen, whatever those things are that you need to happen. It allows people to feel more comfortable, feel less like there's barriers or obstructions or restrictions, a little more open towards talking to you. So if you're a person that's ever been told or you know somebody's been told, man, you're so easy to talk to, that individual very likely does things they're not aware of to build rapport and make you feel that comfortable. And I imagine by now, if you've been following the show or any of the work I've done before, and definitely the people I train, a lot of it has to do with the body language. Is that's part of building the rapport. So remember back in body language, you know, leaning in to show interest, closed off positions, like wrapping yourself up. Those do play a part in building rapport. One of the things you'll see in some upcoming videos, I think one's by Tony Robbins, there's some others on there, talk about mirroring and matching and why these can be done anywhere. These are things I like to teach when I discuss rapport because I tend to teach around interrogation setting where it's a controlled environment. So mirroring and matching you have to be subtle with and you need to practice it because all of a sudden it can be noticed. It can make people feel weird and uncomfortable if even it's working, so you have to be careful with it. It's techniques you use to essentially mimic phrases or words or body positions and why the video I put up in a day or two will have some examples one example simply is if you're talking to somebody and you see that they're showing interest in what you're doing they're leaning in a little bit showing that sign of interest there's no other logical region other than interest that's there and they're really getting engaged one way is to match their movements and that's to just kind of lean in as well you don't have to do it exactly like they're doing but that can help if they get more relaxed that's a good sign So if they kind of kick back or lean to the side, throw their arm up on the chair, just make this big move to be a little more relaxed, you can do something very similar. Don't go so far as to do the same thing, but you can lean a little bit to the same way as they're doing. So if they're leaning to the left and you're sitting across from them, lean to the right. If they're sitting to the side of you and they lean to the left, you can lean to the left a little bit. Don't look like you're trying to get away from them, but you can do these types of things. The other things you can do, a lot of negotiators do this, is you can mirror some of their speech. So what that means is, is you're using usually three or four keywords or parts of a phrase or sentence when speaking to them in order to get their intention and show that you're paying attention. It's very commonly done when we ask questions for clarity to somebody. So if you remember on the deception, one of the deception podcasts I did, I talked about how a liar or deceptive person is going to pretty much repeat back to you word for word, verbatim, what you just asked them. So you don't want to do that. Here's the thing, because we tend to pick up on that as deception, even if we don't mean to or know what it is, if you do something almost verbatim like that, and it's not a question, it can still come across as deception or fake or insincere. So you don't want to do that. That's why we're only using part of the phrase to kind of repeat back for clarity that shows sincerity and honesty, but also as a way to mirror their speech to identify them, look, this guy's paying attention to me. He finds what I have to say valuable. He values me as an individual. Therefore, I'm going to be a little more relaxed and open with him. And that's all this is. Now, here's the thing. At this point, I probably haven't discussed this thing about manipulation much. But this is all a game. It's a bunch of storytelling and lies. The thing is, you have to be convincing and actually believe it or make yourself believe it. It's not a fake it till you make it. It has to be you're that good. And it takes some practice. So when people do this, if you ever saw interrogation stuff, you'd see things even with me and shocks people that know me really well. They think I really care about this individual or I got really emotional or I am very concerned about them. In most of the situations, that was never the case. I did what I needed to do to make the situation work. I saw the signs. I saw that if I did this, it built rapport. I did it more. I saw this killed rapport. I stopped doing it. I saw this tended to get them talking. So I always led with that or went to that. And then tried to find other ways so I wasn't overusing one technique. So while there's a lot of definitions to manipulation and one of them is actually somewhat positive, which essentially comes down to being crafty and skillful. I look at it very simply when I, at least when I did interrogations or work sources, I called it manipulation or playing games with people. But all it really was is the difference between if that sincerely was me as an individual or if I was purposely doing it as a strategy to make things happen. But the overall goal isn't just to get intelligence. You want people you know or people have the training to look at and be like, man, if I didn't know any better, I think that was legit. I think that was really that guy. And that's when you know you're doing it really well. So do understand all this stuff I talk about. A lot of it's manipulation. I mean, arguably, you're manipulating people when you read their body language and are using it to your advantage to make things happen or conversations happen. I don't think that's shady. I think it's knowledge and using a skill. It's manipulation in the way where you're being very skillful and crafty, I guess you could argue, and using your knowledge to benefit yourself in that situation, which doesn't mean it's bad. So explain how well this works. I'm a pretty large mammal. I'm six foot four, over 200 pounds. I'm a big dude. When I was in the military, my interrogation time and agency time, I was very large, stout individual. And it was very intimidating, especially in the Middle East. There are a lot smaller people. And my interrogation booths, as we called them, weren't closets. I worked in a former police station, so the rooms I had were offices. My smallest ones were probably 15, 20-foot square. I had one that was probably 15 by 30 feet long. So that might seem like it helps you, but it doesn't necessarily. We always had a table in there we might use, but I would have to do things to not intimidate people because I wanted them to talk to me. So an example is a lot of people, I'd get a look at them, see who they are, Or at least look at their data, their information, how big are they, how are they acting. It was all part of the preparation for this. And I might go in there and be sitting down and making myself physically smaller while they come in, which could help that situation. But there was one particular situation where we're talking to Bob the terrorist, pretty bad dude. And everybody kind of decided I was probably the interrogator and needed to talk to him. But we weren't sure how it was going to work because I was a big dude. And I was the commander of the facility. So changed my rank, turned myself into the private little bitch of everybody getting him coffee, letting him talk down to me, act a certain way. Even though I was a big dude, I made myself look a little smaller and I only got up a couple of times and he didn't notice me. And then I sat in the back and we made sure that there was kind of an opening between these other three or four interrogators who were in the room and interpreters so that he had a direct line of sight to me. What I did was follow basic principles of matching his body movements somewhat. So like when he kind of just didn't care was like whatever and hunched his shoulders and he kicked his feet out and crossed his ankles because he was uncomfortable. I was like, no problem. So I just kind of casually put a foot out and didn't take me too long that I had an ankle crossed too. And I started making movements like this. And I started displaying not just that, but facial expressions in the way like I had been essentially humiliated as he would see it. And I had no value as a person, which is how he felt. He wasn't being treated that way. Nobody was being aggressive, but he believed that's what it was going to be like there. That's why he had those body movements. So I matched them. It only took about 20 or 25 minutes. And he just said, I only want to talk to him. And he pointed at me. And they were like, What? I don't think we any of us expected it to happen that quickly. But they also acted like, I don't know if you can talk to this guy. You know, he's brand new. And they're like, No, I'm only going to talk to him. So we made it this whole scene. And like we go out and, you know, like they got to talk to me and prepare me for it. And then when I go in, I stumble a little bit and act like I'm a little new at it. And that worked to get that guy to talk, and we got a lot of information out of him. Once I learned these types of techniques, especially matching, and I started watching people, people watching, I started watching people on dates and restaurants, interactions at work. I did it a lot when I would go get medical treatment and see how people acted. And I started paying attention to when somebody from across the room notices another person and why. Now, discounting an obvious person that stands out because of some ridiculous clothing or Something about their physical appearance that is completely out of the norm for the location. Typically, most people were sitting down or, say, anchoring on something. So they're like leaning on something or get their hand on something. Like if you're at a bar, maybe they're not sitting down. But they're leaning on the bar. They're anchored on that object. I realized there was a lot of matching going on. There's a lot of physical body movements. Most times, both parties were not aware were happening. And it caused one or both to draw attention to the other. So I've tried this. I've tried it in offices. I've tried it at bars where I just very casually make sure I'm in a way where I can be seen, but I'm not directly or obviously in somebody's sight line. And then I try to make certain movements and things or look around and do things they do. Because people tend to be attracted to people that either like themselves or like they want to be, which is why this works. And I've found myself getting approached and having people come talk to me or take more of a notice or long glances or winks. And while thankfully they mostly were women, there was a couple of occasions where it was not a woman. I think I had to very politely handle that situation because I was really working in my mind. But these techniques do work. So think about this. Take a look at it. Do some people watching. Look at this matching thing. Try it on somebody. This is something you probably get away with trying it on home with your wife or your husband. But try it. Try matching their movements a little bit, especially if you want to get them to talk and be more open it's so much better to use body that way, like body language, because it's such a large part of a vocabulary, but it also doesn't come with preconceived notions, tones of voice or any of this stuff. It's far more effective at motivating somebody to be open and start speaking than trying to do it verbally, no matter how you speak to them. And this is a big part of what happens between men and women in relationship As I've seen this. If I've observed it, a lot of it had to do with their body language. If they'd learn how to understand the body language, they'd get a from some of the negative speaking or emotions that come up, which is not meant to give you any type of counseling. It's actually a segue because one of the things I learned about interrogators that they had this problem called the moral and ethical dilemma. It had to do with the job and being able to do the job. So this job means you have to know or see somebody get killed or just mutilated on a battlefield. Somebody you know really well. So we're way beyond patriotism and brotherhood here. And for some reason, whatever it is, you have to be the one that goes in to interrogate them. And you have to go in and be friendly and objective to get what you need. Now, a lot of people are like, oh, I'd go in there and I'd slap them around or I'd be angry I'd yell at them. There's times that can work, but predominantly it doesn't. At least not off the get-go. You have to go in there and try to make them feel comfortable and motivate them to talk to you. And you have to put a little time and effort into it. Going in and yelling at people and being aggressive tends to shut most people down. So you start with the approaches and techniques that tend to work, tend to let most people be open and communicate, and then start narrowing it down and identifying, are one of these negative things potentially going to work at some point? There are occasions and times where the aggressive part does work, don't get me wrong, but it's like anything. It takes a very experienced and skilled person to read an individual and decide what's going to work best in that situation quicker. And not only that, who really is going to be the right match, the right interrogator for that person? Now, while you're not going to be interrogating anybody, keep that theory in mind when you start trying to use anything I teach you on somebody else just to see if it works. So this moral and ethical dilemma, it actually causes a lot of people to get fired or quit. I fired a lot of interrogators because they just cannot stay objective and they would get too emotional and connected to that individual. We call it falling in love with your detainee, even though it wasn't really falling in love, which actually happened a couple of times for real, but not with any of my people. But that kind of thing does happen. So one example is I had a young detainee come in. He's really young. He's early 20. He was actually a really good looking guy. Loved his wife. Always talking about his wife and how beautiful she was. He also just loved women in general and found American women very beautiful and how they dressed and was really just making this easy on us. And I happen to have one of my female interrogators and one of my female interpreters. Uh, my female interpreter was fairly attractive. They both were larger chested and more clothing smaller than they should which was its own problem at times. But they agreed and thought right off the bat, we should just try the whole appearance piece, sending two women in there. We'll just wear our shirts. That'll get his attention. Maybe that'll throw him off enough. So I was like, all right, as long as you're okay with it, because I don't want to get some kind of charges filed against me. Like, no, this is the job. This is part of the job. And having a conversation like this is part of the moral and ethical dilemma. So they go in there and get this guy's attention right off the bat. And he's just talking and talking and they're talking to him. And we're like, wow, this is really working. So we turn the speaker on because these are all surveilled. There's all audio and video surveillance in there running a 24-hour feed, whether everybody's in there or not. So we start watching about it. he starts talking about his wife and his wife's so beautiful. And I love my wife. And all of a sudden, both these females kind of went, ah, at the same time. And both leaned to the right, put their heads in their hands. It was not planned. They completely fell in love with their detainee. They got caught in the moment. So I had to go in there, stop the interrogation, and kick them both out of there and start a new plan and never send them back there again because that is something that would make it to where they lost control. They would have a hard time recovering and uh, we might not get enough time with this guy to get information. Plus the fact that we move in the situation, he wants to talk to them. We can always use that as bait, cooperate. Maybe I'll let you talk to one of these ladies. Sometimes the moral and ethical dilemma people have is they just don't have it in them to manipulate. They don't realize going through the training that's what it is or they don't believe it's going to be that way. And they go in there and realize, I understand why these techniques work. I understand why I'm trying to get them to remember they love their wife and they could go home to their wife and they're you know, hurting their wife by being here. Something along these lines. But I feel so terrible doing it. It's not really me. I don't think it's right. And that's part of the moral ethical dilemma. And that's a person that should have been identified and never should have been in the job. But those are things we have to deal with. Now, here's what's lucky for us when you listen to my show. If you're going to try this stuff on everyday people, you don't need to worry about that. You just pick and choose who you want to do it to. You're not in a job or position where you have no choice but to do it no matter who it is. But what you want to always remember is you want to have the ability to do this to anybody. So if you're really following this to learn the gray man concept, you really want to be gray. If you're one of the people out there that see this as a valuable tool, that thinks along the lines of certain people where this might be the way you have to live one day, you definitely want to settle with the idea you could have to do this with anybody. So that's something each person has to work out. So when comparing interrogation to running sources for the everyday person, I want you to look at it like time frame, where all these techniques and stuff can be used. If you're going to be sitting down talking to somebody for a few hours, that's more along the lines of what an interrogation would be. If you're just running into somebody or meeting or talking to them for less than like 30 minutes, 20 minutes, that's a lot what it's like when you run sources. There's only certain occasions, especially in agencies where you have assets you've handled sometimes for months or years where you will meet them for several hours. But even that might be treated much like an interrogation. So one thing to look at is when I would interrogate, we did what we call planning and prep. Short version is you get all kinds of information on them. You would read it, try to get to know and understand them, try to brainstorm what you would do, come up with a plan and even role play in your head and do all these thought processes, at least that's what I do, thinking about how the conversation could play out. It was very similar to like going to meet at somebody, important meeting, or you got to give a presentation. Or perhaps it's a job interview and you're like, they might ask these questions, this might happen, how will I react, how will I say to it? That's kind of how that process works, and I think a lot of us do that already anyway. So my advice is, as I teach you more tips and techniques, especially stuff we do in interrogation. The more time you're naturally going to think about how is this conversation or interaction going to go, those are the times to think more about the approach techniques and things I'll teach you in the upcoming podcast from interrogation. When it's going to be situations that you're not normally putting a lot of thought into naturally about what am I going to do? Like, let's say you're going to go get coffee, go to the bar, you're going to go to the grocery store. You're going to run into people, but probably not people you know that well. And it's not a situation where you think about how you're going to communicate to them. Those are the situations you want to spend more time focusing on the body language, the nonverbal communication and detecting deception. Now, the reason I say that is to help you learn how to do this stuff. If you try to take all these and apply them to all situations all the time when you're just learning it, it's going to be very difficult. So if you take my suggestions and break them down that way, what will happen is they will start to merge naturally because when you have these long, important conversations, whatever they are, that tends to be the biggest thing. We're getting from that source. We're working that one source. We're planning conversations, trying to get them to talk, whatever we're trying to do. Whereas you could run in and have conversations with 10 or 20 people in one day. But the amount of time we spend with those 10 or 20 people, cumulatively, may not be as much as that one person. And the reason why I say that is when we start talking about approaches in the next podcast and going over how these approaches work, you'll find that they're not quick and easy. They are communication strategies that take minutes, sometimes hours to get in place and figure out how they all work to persuade somebody to start doing or communicating or whatever it is you're trying to make happen. Whereas just looking at body language or picking out specific words or phrases or behaviors to look for detection only takes seconds. That's why it's easier to take something that takes a little bit of time and apply it to those small interactions and take something like approaches and rapport building and focus it mainly on these bigger, longer interactions. I also make the suggestion because that's how I train people and people in this business of trained people for a long time when they're first starting out. And it definitely works, so at least give it a try and see if that's what's going to work best for you when you're learning these skills. So to recap, we've talked a little bit about the evolution and change of an interrogation and things that have happened in that nature. Um, and then most of the other stuff we talked about was rapport building and then how to do interrogations. And I gave you a couple of stories. So I know it's kind of just a general loose overview, but this will get you started. Start watching those videos coming out. Look for rapport building videos because I'm going to focus heavily on rapport and approaches. Try the matching stuff. You can definitely try that on anybody. Matching is just a way to use your own body language somewhat in sync, I guess you could say, or in tune with another individual's body language, but it doesn't work on all of it, only certain types of body language. Try some of those mirroring techniques in the communication, picking out those keywords without using it so obvious or deliberately it looks like deception. And then put a little thought into... What conversations do you have coming up that are going to be short interactions versus long ones that you can start putting some thought into about how do you want to discuss whatever you're about to discuss with this individual so that you can have that clear in your mind so that on Saturday's podcast when we start talking about approaches, you'll have the rest of the weekend to take what you're preparing for in conversations the rest of this week. You'll learn those approaches on Saturday and then come Monday you can hit the ground running or you might even hit it on Sunday or Saturday even. One thing is I'm going to start putting more books. I'll definitely tell you when I got different books, but I'm going to put a link in again on a book I did on a previous podcast called Covert Persuasion. It focuses a lot on sales. But I think if you look at that now, and it's a free PDF, you can just go straight to the free PDF. You'll see a lot of those conversations and phrases and words they use are not only just sales techniques. Some of them are mirroring or matching techniques. Some of them are going to start making more sense. But if you haven't done so, go get that free PDF. And then the next time I give you a book, I'll give you a good recommendation one. I think it'll help you when it comes to the subjects we're talking about now, especially with rapport building. Thanks for listening. And if you did like this and enjoy this show, please like and share. Give it a heart on whatever format you're at. Share it with people if you believe it's something they're going to be interested in. If you haven't been here before and you're looking for my Twitter or Facebook page, the link's in the show notes, as well as at the bottom, another show called the disagreeable thoughts and philosophies of DMR publications, where you learn about some health subjects, even a good couple of posts recently on COVID 19, as well as economy, military action, things going on around the world today. Thanks again for being here on Grey Man Hiding in Plain Sight, and we look forward to bringing you more good content in the future coming Saturday, where we'll be discussing approach techniques, one of the ways we plan and strategize and use communication during interrogation operations.